Remain standing for the reading of God's word as we look at Hosea chapter 4 and going into chapter 5. It is a little bit of a longer passage tonight, but let us be reminded that it's not only through the preaching of God's word, but the reading as well, that God builds us up and strengthens us, for this truly is his word. Begin reading in Hosea 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. They are swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priests. You shall stumble by day. The prophets also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will charge, change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I'll punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which takes away understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hill under oak, poplar, terebinth, because the shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters then they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Ear, O house of the kings, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread over Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. and They know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in its guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt false faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word this night. You may be seated. Our justice system in the United States is 
one of the better parts, in my opinion, of our government. Is it perfect? No, far from it. There's many ways that it has injustice and ways it needs to be reformed, but the structure, I think, is sound. The goal is God-given and right. That is to establish and maintain justice within this land. Without laws and justice, then uh, without laws and justice, society as a whole would cease. And so God uses this to provide order to the earth. If you think this isn't important, then just travel to a third world country where there is not a good legal system, where there is rather a system of corruption and bribes, and you'll be thankful once again for America. And our justice system derives much of its principles from the Judeo-Christian ethics, the biblical and scriptural principles. And we see these principles in the portions of scripture known as the law. Even though we do not have the same structure of government as Israel, we do not have a theocracy, much of the principles and general equity can be derived from the law and even applied to us because our God is a righteous God. And so tonight as we come back to Hosea and that of the prophets, we are reminded that the prophets were the appliers of the law. They were the reminders of God's law, the standard of righteousness and justice and that of which was required of the people. O. Palmer Robertson writes this, on what basis did the prophets denounce the cultural patterns of the day? Were their condemnations based on their personal conceptions of right and wrong? Did their predictions rest on their own political acumen? Or did their social communities determine their outlook? He goes on to say, without the foundational concepts of God's law and God's covenant, the prophets would have been awash in a sea of relativism. You hear what Robertson is saying there is that they didn't just make up what they thought would be good. In fact, it wasn't based upon them at all. And as a result, they were not awash because they had God's covenant and his law in an objective standard of what is right and wrong. However, as we read this passage, we see that the people very much were awash, going here and there rather than fixed on God and his truth. And so what we see in the prophets is that the prophets often bring a prosecution, a case, as it were, against the people. And what we see tonight in this passage is just that. God bringing a case against his people. And it's set up very much as a court case. And we'll look at it in two points. First, the indictments. And then the trial. First, the indictment, chapters 1 through 3 that we completed last week are the narrative portions of Hosea. And we have seen how Hosea's relationship with his wife is a parallel to the relationship that God has with Israel. It is a real-life parable. 
Hosea's wife is unfaithful. Israel is unfaithful. And they both have other lovers. And we saw last week how this sin, how this unfaithfulness has real conflicts. Hosea's wife, we can believe, literally became enslaved because she went after other lovers. And we saw how Hosea had to go retrieve his wife and in fact redeem her, had to pay a price to gain her freedom and then how he restores her. And this, as we saw, is what God does with Israel. And this is what God does with us as well through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see this grand story of redemption throughout the book of Hosea. But now as we come to chapter 4, we move into the more prophetic portions of Hosea. And no doubt these are a little more difficult to interpret. They do not flow as analytically or systematically as we may want. They don't always break down into neat sections. But I think we can see some themes that emerge throughout them. As we see here in chapter 4, verse 1, it begins with a summons. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. You can almost hear it as a court-martial would say, calling all to attention. Hear ye, hear ye, hear now the word of the Lord. It goes on to say, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. He has a quarrel or a legal suit with the inhabitants of this land. We could rightly name this Almighty God versus the inhabitants of the land, namely Israel. And we could say that this is a prosecution case, or perhaps maybe even better, as a divorce proceeding. That the Lord is giving reason, evidence, why he would have every right to divorce his people. The one that he has entered into covenant relationship with, which, as you know, parallels a marriage covenant. And after this summons, we hear the charge. We see this in the second half of verse 1. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. That is a hefty charge saying that she is not faithful. She does not love me. She does not know me or even want to know me. There is no knowledge. Interestingly enough, when I do marriage counseling, I would say that these are perhaps the top three problems in marriage. When there is a lack of faithfulness, Sometimes because of infidelity, but other times because one or both spouses are not doing their roles in marriage and are not being faithful to each other in what God calls us to in being husband and wife. We see oftentimes that the love, the spark, the relationship that was once there is no longer there. And that there is, as a result, no understanding 
of one another. And whereas this is not to be a sermon on marriage or this passage per se speaks directly about marriage, we see the call here to make this a priority in our marriage for those of us that are married. That we are to be attentive to these three things, are we not? That these three things can slip away easily if we do not attend to them. And as a result, we can become merely roommates or even worse, distant acquaintances or perhaps even far worse, even become enemies within our own homes. We must continue to kindle the fire within our marriages. There must be love. There must be understanding. There must be attentiveness and faithfulness. And that is not only true in our marriage relationship, but that is true in our relationship with the Lord as well. And we need to have a heart connection as much as a life connection. As we saw this morning that there needs to be a holiness of heart and life. As Jesus criticized the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts had gone astray or had gone cold. There was no flame of love or knowledge or understanding or faithfulness as a result. The honor, obviously, with their lips is good and right, but not at the expense or the absence of the heart. We must never forget our first love, the love that we have for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that is the charge that is being brought against Israel. And it goes from the charge to the evidence in verse 2. That the relationship is broken. Well, why is that? Because not only do they not have love or faithfulness or knowledge, but they actually do the opposite. In fact, they have broken the second tablet of the law. We see this in verse 2. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, breaking all bonds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Not only have they committed the sins of omission, not doing that which they should be doing, they commit the sins of commission, the active disobedience, the breaking of God's law. And the question that needs to be asked, is this the, the chicken or the egg scenario? What produces what? Does our sin lead to the forgetfulness of God? Or is it the forgetfulness of God that leads us to sin? And my answer to that is yes. Both and. That it is both of those things simultaneously. And that is what's happening here. And so we see the summons, we see the charge, we see the evidence. And as a result, we see the consequences. Verse 3, therefore the land mourns. All who dwell in it languish. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The consequences are far-reaching, are they not? Affecting far more than just the individual that commits the sin. The whole land mourns, as it says. All who dwell in it 
languish. There's not a prosperity here. No, it's in fact the opposite. There is a dwindling, a diminishing. So much so that it even says that the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, even the fish of the sea suffer. This is part of that Genesis 3 curse, is it not? As a result of the fall, all of the earth groans. The land now produces thorns and thistles and that we work by the sweat of our brow and it's tiring and we, as it says here, languish underneath the fallenness of this earth. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, that creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You hear what Paul is saying there, that even the earth longs for its day of freedom. But until that day of freedom, that day of redemption, that there is much groaning that goes onward. And we know some of those groans, do we not? Perhaps every morning as you wake up and try to get out of bed, you groan as your body aches because of yesterday's troubles and travails. Well, here in Hosea and as as the rest of the Old Testament, God promises to restore the blessing of the land to his people. Even as they came into the promised land, it was supposed to be a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey, if they are faithful. But if they are not, then the land too will provide further curses upon them. And what I think we see here from Hosea and the rest of Scripture is that, as I said earlier, sin affects far more than the individual. It affects the earth that we live in. It affects the people that we live around. It even affects our homes. And we see that in our culture today, do we not? Not only through the breakdown of marriages, but the breakdown of the home. That our homes, which should be havens of peace and rest, can become dens of contention and discord. And we are not immune to this, are we? It happens within our own homes. It happens within our immediate family members, those very close to us. And we see this sad, sad reality, and it's the nature of sin, and we hate that sin. We hate that sin within us. We hate that sin that's in the earth that has brought this languishing, this groaning upon us. But nevertheless, that is the consequences, is it not? Of this sin. And so verses 1 through 3 give the indictments. We see the summons, the charge, the evidence, the consequences. Well, as we see now, it's time to move on with the trial. And we see this in the second point. The Lord begins to lay out his trial against his own people. In a sense, against his own wife, Israel, his covenant people. They have become corrupt through and through from 
the top down to the bottom. And it's interesting here that he begins his charge with the leaders, primarily the priests, but also the prophets and the kings too. We see this in verse 4, my contention is with you, O priests. Verse 5, you stumble by day and the prophets join you by night. And we see why in verse 1 that there was no knowledge of God in the land. Who was it that was to be teaching the people knowledge of God? Well, it was the priests. It was the prophets. It was the kings of that day. It was to be the leaders. It was to be them that were to teach so that the people could learn and know And yet, as it says in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. You have forgotten the law of your God. The leaders were not doing their job, were they? They were leading the people in the charge of foolishness and sin. Instead of teaching, instead of warning, instead of rebuking, they were the ringmasters of the sin, it seems. And the Lord lays the charge first at the feet of the leaders. And this indeed should be a sobering thought. If the Lord gives us responsibility, if he gives us oversight, that is something that is to be taken with grave seriousness. If the Lord would have us to be leaders within his church, then we should lay any charges first and foremost with ourselves before we lay them at the feet of our people. In fact, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And we see that in this passage as well. And we need to be reminded of this and we need to have rightful fear. Not to be afraid or to run away from such a position if the Lord puts that position upon you. But to be reminded that these are the Lord's people. They're to be cared for. They're to be shepherded. They're to be fed. They're to be led. They're to be fed with the word of God. Because it is through that word, that they will have the knowledge of God, which we see as being so important in that which the leaders were failing to give to their very own people that were under their care, under their charge. The elders and the deacons, too, have been working through crystallizing our purpose, our vision. What is it that the Lord has called us to do here at Smyrna Presbyterian Church, and we've tried to put that together in a a short summary. And it's something you can pray about for us. But the vision that we have put together reads like this. Smyrna Presbyterian Church gathers together to know and worship the triune God, to grow in the covenant family of God as reformed disciples and show forth the love of Christ as servants and witnesses for the glory of God. 
which is a mouthful, but it can be summarized with those three words to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to show forth the love of Christ. But it begins with knowing, does it not? With the knowledge of the Lord. But you can't love that which you don't know. You can't serve that which you have no knowledge of. And as we see here, the leaders of Hosea's day were not doing that. And in fact, it seems as if they were using people for their own advantage. As it says in verse 8, they fed on the sins of the people. They are greedy for iniquity. As if they were encouraging sin so that more sin offerings, which they could receive a portion of that, could be given to them. It reminds me of the time of the Protestant Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences. Of course, by the selling of indulgences, they were encouraging the people to indulge so as to receive more. In fact, we can even say that the great grand cathedral in Rome, St. Peter's, was built by the money that was received from this foolish and wicked practice. It's encouraging sin instead of discouraging. Helping it along instead of warning against it. And we should not be surprised then, as it reads in verse 9, as it shall be like the people, like priest. But... As the priests go, so go the people. And that is one of the things that one of my mentors told me very early on. As the leaders go, so goes the people. That we shouldn't be surprised that the people follow in the same direction that their leaders go. Either in a good direction or a bad direction. And in this case, it is a very bad direction. They are unfaithful. They are doing exactly what Hosea's wife, Gomer, was charged with. With prostituting themselves. Of, as it says in verse 10, playing the whore. Because they had forsaken the Lord. And then it goes on to give the proof. Verse 12, they inquire of a piece of wood. And if you think about it, that is all that idols are, is a a piece of wood. In fact, it even gives, I think, a little bit of mockery when it says that they uh, ask their walking staff to give them oracles. As if saying, walking staff, which way should I go? Which way should I turn? Instead of seeing that it's actually the walking staff that follows you wherever you go. But yet, the roles have been so reversed. Their worldview has been turned so upside down that they're taking things of the creation and putting them above them instead of having creation be underneath them in the order of dominion as he has given it to man with God rightly above and then man and then the rest of the earth. Instead, they have turned it the opposite. 
goes on. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the top of the mountains. They burn burnt offerings on the hills. But these are not sacrifice or burnt offerings to the true God, but to false gods. They, verse 14, commit sexual sins associated with these gods. They commit adultery. It says their daughters play the whore. Men go aside with prostitutes and cult prostitutes. This is stunning, really. Thinking that this is the people of God and they are acting no different than the nations. They are engaging in the very same acts as the people of that day. And we see the end results. Verse 14. A people without understanding shall come to ruin. Proverbs 28, 29:18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint and perish. If there is no prophetic vision, where there is no understanding, people come to ruin and perish. And so as we think about this and we are stunned by it, we must think again, where is it that we gain knowledge so that we would not go in this same way, that we would learn from this negative example and go in a complete opposite direction so that we would learn even through them vicariously so as to repent even before this would happen. Where is it that we would gain vision? Where is it that we have the prophetic wisdom of God given to us. Well, it is no secret. It is from the word of God. That is the sure foundation for our feet, the sure foundation of God's truth. And where that is lacking or in decay, there is ruin and the people perish. This week in men's Bible study, the men are studying Ephesians chapter 6, to put on the full armor of God. And it says, put on the full armor of God so as to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we got into an interesting discussion asking ourselves, what is the schemes of the devil? And surely it is all sin, of course. But the specific number one scheme of the devil is deception. It is falsehood. It's his oldest scheme. It's his oldest trick, is it not? Remember, what is it that he asked in the garden? Did God really say? The more God can erode the truth, the more he erodes the sure foundation upon which our lives must be built. And as a result, how much more easily we fall according to all sorts of sins. This is what Jesus said, is it not? Blessed is he who hears these words of mine and does them, for he will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Well, during Hosea's day, they were doing the opposite. They had no foundation. They built their life upon the sand, and when the rain fell, when the floods came and the winds blew, great was its fall. And so I say it again, and you've probably heard it so often that we can grow tired of it, perhaps. But it is through the reading and preaching of God's word, through the right administration of the sacraments, that that is the true and sure foundation for our 
feet. We don't need less of the Bible. We need more of it again and again and again. Because if we do not have that, then we do not have anything at all. Again, listen to what Paul says to Timothy, his protege. In fact, this is the perhaps the last letter that Paul ever wrote just days before he is about to die. What is it that is his final word? What is it is his final instruction in the remaining moments that he has? Well, he tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Isn't that exactly what was taking place in the day of Hosea? And Paul says it was taking place that day, in the day of Timothy, and no doubt is taking place today. But here is Paul's correction to that. Here is Paul's remedy for the church. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and with all teaching. For it is that preaching and teaching that contains the gospel. It contains Christ. If we do not have ears to hear or think, well, I'll I'll just think about that later. It may be too late. We have no guarantee that we will be given another opportunity, do we? Or perhaps we might find ourselves entrapped in sin and not able to get out. But every time we hear the word of God, we sit under the discipline of God. The right self-discipline that is so needed as we reform ourselves according to God's word and according to his truth. As the word of God brings both conviction as well as comfort. We can grow and mature and be strengthened and do those things that God would call us to do. To know, to grow, and then show forth the love of Christ to the world. Notice what happened with the people during Hosea's day. In chapter 5, verse 5, through their pride, says they will stumble and they will fall. And that is the ultimate ends to all sin, is it not that ultimately a sinner will stumble and they will fall? But notice what happens as it says in verse 6. With their flocks and their herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he is withdrawn from them. That is a part of the discipline of the Lord. And even says in verse 2 of chapter 5 that he will discipline them. That the Lord will not contend forever. He will not allow his pearl to be cast before swine. That we must always hear the word of God and examine our lives in the light of it. Otherwise, we would become prideful. And great is that fall. And when we fall, the Lord may not be there when we look up, left to our own sin and our own ruin. But tonight, as we close, we can be thankful that the Lord has not left us. He has not abandoned us or forsaken us, but he is here with us even now and is present.
and any that would turn to him. He is here to hear our cries of repentance, our confessions of sin, and he answers those prayers. All those that pray to him in faith, in the faith that is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are in sin this night, like that of the Israelites, today is the day to make that right, to be reconciled to him, to come to him, to cast yourself upon his mercy and his grace. And for all of us, let us be reminded to diligently heed the word of God once again. As many and as often as the Lord would give us opportunity to do so. So as to know the Lord and to grow in him and to show forth the fruits of that knowledge and love that we have. May we do so all for his glory and through his grace. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, Lord, for this warning, for this rebuke, for this trial that you bring against your people. And Lord, we know that you could bring the same trial against us. If it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ, we would stand guilty and condemned for hell forever. But Lord, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ stood trial for us. He gave of himself, placed his righteous record over that of our criminal one, placed his faithfulness on top of our unfaithfulness, Lord, and redeemed us and bought us. Lord, we thank you that you are now restoring us. And Lord, we thank you that you do that through your word. As your word has its way within us, as it works within us, Lord, it is living and active to bring to mind those sins that we must confess and repent of and to bring to comfort those promises that we have in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we pray that we would dwell richly in the word of God as you give it to us and be thankful for it again this day and this week, O Lord, until we would come to see you face to face, until we would place our eyes upon the true word of God. Lord, may we see you through this word that you have given to us, revealed and written to us. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.